recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink at Christagenia.org. Today is August 30th, 2013. Friday, August 30th, 2013. And this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I'm sorry for the delay tonight. We're about 10 minutes late. I had a few technical problems at the last minute with my streams. There are now only four Christagenia streams. Two of them are brand new. They're on brand new servers, and they didn't want to connect for one reason or another. I had to scramble to revert to an old configuration on my end and, and then edit that configuration to connect to new servers. I had made a few other changes. I should know better than to... Um, change two variables at once, but to change one thing at a time and, 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 and then test it before I change the next. So tonight's delay was my own fault. The servers were working this afternoon as planned until I went and meddled with it. That's okay. I, I really don't have um, a, a proving grounds to test things on. Most of the things I do are tested in, in, in live, right, when I change the website or the radio stream. So things are bound to happen. The state of Christagenia, Christagenia is back up and running entirely. Um, Christagenia and the other, the other nonprofit websites that I host on Christagenia servers, I was able to get um, kinsmanredeemer.com up immediately after last Saturday's program and all of the Christagenia subdomains, including Clifton Emmaheiser's site and, and Christreich and the Compray and Swift sites up last Saturday and Sunday. I spent most of the rest of the week um, cleaning house from the moves and, and, and testing backup routines and setting that all up again so that in the event of a, cert, a, a, of a similar in, incident in the future, I will once again be able to recover my websites. My old Internet service provider, I posted a thread on the Christagenia forum called Life's a Beach. My old Internet service provider apparently skipped on their rent. And I don't know how they did it, but to this day, their website, their website came back on, I believe it was Wednesday, late Wednesday night. Their business website came back on. So they're selling servers, I mean, or their website wouldn't be up. However, none of the four servers I had with them, and I still have the IP numbers, none of those four servers are online yet. So I'm glad that I um, made the move I did and replaced them immediately, as well, well, as soon as I possibly could. Christagenia.org was down for about mm, maybe 34, 36 hours. That, that's um, not, not too bad, considering it's 34 domains and subdomains. And I have a, a one-man operation to get them all back up and running. So I, I praise Yahweh that um, he's blessed me with the ability to do that. Since um, Christagenia is up and running, the, the podcast averages the down at every day about 20, for the last six days, 2,500 podcasts have been downloaded from Christagenia.org. And we've had at least 700 visitors a day. I think one day we didn't hit that, but that's... That, that's um, Praise Yahweh again that, that um, the site could be offline for two days and recover its, its number of visitors and, and podcast downloads so quickly. What can I say? It's, it's, um, I'm blessed that I'm able to have the reach that I do with my message, and I hope to magnify it. 
the um, the website is currently ranked about 163,000 in the world on Alexa. I expected the rankings to um, to take a hit with the downtime, and, and they haven't. They've still been moving up. We're 27,000 and change in the United States. A better measurement of, of um, our success and our progress at Christagonia and our effectivity, that because I know I'm never going to be popular, but I only seek to be effective to get my message into the faces of as many of our kindred as I possibly can, whether they accept it or not. A better measurement, measurement of how effective we've been able to, um, to be is the, the number of DNS queries made against Christagenia websites. In um, August of 2012, that number was 708,000. Most people count these as hits, right? They're DNS queries. The number was 708,000. And it's gone up every month since August of 2012. Now it's 1.4 million. It's, it's 1.445 million to date this month. It'll hit 1.5 million. That's, that's double our website traffic over the past year. I'm grateful to Yahweh our God for that, and I hope to do it again this year. I, I pray. And, well, I don't do it. He does, right? <laughs> Yahweh and, and um, it, it, he awakens his people to search for the truth. And, and we believe that what we do is, to, to, the, to, to a great extent, I'm not going to claim to be perfect, a presentation of the truth of the history of our race and the gospel and the truth of our God. So I, I simply pray that we're able to continue and make the same progress over the course of another year. Because we've certainly reached um, audiences which no Christian identity site has been able to do to date. And I pray that we continue to be able to do that. I'd like to state a few words about Zechariah chapter 14. There are some real fools in Christian identity, and I've gotten emails over the last month so I, I know where it's coming from. It's coming from the Novemberites. It's coming from the, the Jewish quarter of Christian identity. And, and they're now using Zechariah chapter 14 in order to make the, the, the wildly unscriptural assertion that races other than the Adamic race can possibly see the kingdom of heaven. Yahweh, or, or I'm sorry, Yahshua Christ, who is Yahweh incarnate, says in John chapter 3 that unless a man is born from above, unless a man is born of the heavenly race, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. He won't see it at all. You can't use one scripture in order to refute another scripture. The scripture does not fail. Christ, when he spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, was not lying. Unless a man is born from above, unless a man has the spirit of the Adamic man given to Adam, our first father, by Yahweh our God and imparted to each one of us through his seed, unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven, period. 
Adamic man came from heaven through the creation of Yahweh our God and his spirit, and we shall see the kingdom of heaven. That's not for anyone else. That's not for the bastards, the manzers, the other races. It's simply not for them. Now they're using Zechariah to somehow prove other scriptures wrong. And, and if you have two scriptures that, are, that, that one is in conflict with the other, and you see a conflict, there's something wrong with your thinking. The conflict is in your mind. You have an agenda, and that's why you want to create a conflict from Scripture. You have an agenda that's an ungodly agenda and would twist one Scripture or another and flee from Scripture to Scripture as you're demonstrated to be wrong, looking for a new Scripture to twist in order to support your agenda. I'm going to read some passages from Zechariah chapter 14. I'm going to comment on them from verse 1. Behold, the day of Yahweh cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. We can compare Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, Revelation chapters 19 and 20. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And this shall be the plague, wherewith Yahweh will smite all the people. Now I'm reading verse 12. I started with verses 1 and 2. And this shall be the plague, wherewith Yahweh will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass, verse 16 now, that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the capital, the seat of Yahweh's people, but not necessarily the sum total of his people, you know, in the ancient kingdom we had Jerusalem and we had Samaria and they were often opposed to each other and just as many of Yahweh's people were in Samaria we had Jerusalem and we had Tyre inhabited by the children of Israel and Sidon to a great extent inhabited by the children of Israel and they were opposed to each other Zechariah is writing from a Jerusalem perspective alone and it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Who would be left of the nations that fought against Jerusalem? Let's read Jeremiah chapter 30 from verse 11. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end this message in Jeremiah 30 is to the dispersion of Israel. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Now the question is, can we read? Can we read Jeremiah? Zechariah? Can we read Zechariah 14, 16? 
in a manner which conflicts with Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. Can we read Zechariah 14, 16 in a manner which conflicts with Zechariah 14, 12, where Yahweh says that he will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem? Of course we cannot. Zechariah cannot be interpreted in a manner which makes Jeremiah a liar. Rather, Zechariah must be interpreted in a, in a manner which is consistent with Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the, other, all the rest of Scripture. Therefore, everyone that is left of the nations that fought against Jerusalem can only be a remnant of the children of Israel because Yahweh said that he would make a full end of all the other nations. Let me continue quoting from Zechariah 14, from verse 17. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth is a reference to the Genesis 10 Adamic nations, which we demonstrated at length from our scripture, from scripture in our Amos part 6 presentation here last March. All the families of the earth can only refer to the Genesis 10 white Adamic nations and no one else. And ostensibly, these are only Israelites, according to Jeremiah chapter 30, and the Israelite nations of Romans chapter 4 and the promise to Abraham. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth under Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt, verse 18, and if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith Yahweh will smite, and the King James has smite the heathen. They come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles is part of Yahweh's law. Yahweh's law was only given to Israel. Who is the family of Egypt? It sure as hell ain't sand niggers. It's not today's Egyptians. It's not Joe November's son-in-law. The family of Egypt are the children of Israel who were in Egypt in captivity and saved from that captivity by Yahweh God. They are the family of Egypt. Nobody else is the family of Egypt. Sure as hell not the Egyptians. Ezekiel, Yahweh says in Ezekiel that he gave Egypt, meaning Mitzrayim, up for the sake of the children of Israel. We can't read Zechariah in a manner that conflicts with the rest of Scripture. We have to interpret Zechariah's prophecy and these allegories in a manner which is consistent with the rest of Scripture. The law was only given to the children of Israel. The Feast of Tabernacles is only for the children of Israel. 
This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The family of Egypt is the children of Israel. I have called my son out of Egypt. That word heathen in the King James in verse 18, that word heathen, that's the, the interpretation. Every translation contains so much interpretation. Translators' prerogatives, which way to translate a particular word. Guesses made from the context as the translator sees it at the time, whether he be right or not, the word heathen could very well be translated people in this verse. Often, it should be. It shouldn't be heathen here. There's nobody left except the children of Israel, according to Jeremiah, according to Obadiah, even according to Zechariah 14.12, where Yahweh says that he will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. And that consists of all nations, Zechariah 14.2. We can't read Zechariah in a way that conflicts with the rest of Scripture. If we do, then it's because we have an agenda and we're not being honest. Zechariah 14 has nothing to do with Sandeggers. It has nothing to do with anybody but the children of Israel. For only they were given a law in the Feast of Tabernacles. And that law was given to no other people according to Scripture. The perverts, the Novemberites, the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, the Universalists, whether they be Novemberites or not, they would seek to twist the Scripture and have it conflict with itself. Scripture must be interpreted consistently because it, the Scripture, as Yahshua Christ tells us, does not fail. If there's a problem with the Scripture, you better prove that there's a problem with the underlying language, that somehow it was corrupted or, or badly translated. You better prove it. If there's a problem with the Scripture and it's not, the fault of the underlying language or the fault of the translation or, or the fault of the scribes who possibly corrupted it, and, and you have to demonstrably show it's corrupted, if that is the case, you can't just guess that it's corrupted. <laughs> then you're a liar. You're a liar if that's the case, if you're just guessing, or if you're insisting it's corrupted without any linguistic or manuscript evidence. The scripture does not fail unless men make it to fail. And I'm sure Clifton Emmerheiser would agree with me. And tonight, Clifton's here with us. I'm sorry, Clifton, it's been so long. Tonight, Clifton is here with us to discuss part two of his paper, The Insane Doctrine of Personal Salvation versus Covenant Theology. Hello, Clifton. Thank you for your patience. Yeah, um... I'm checking to see how well my microphone's working. Okay, it sounds fine right now. I'm about three uh, three inches from the mic, and what I did, I 
got a couple books and I put underneath the mic. Okay. So I, I think I can maintain and still read from the screen here. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, Bill, you, uh, what you presented there goes right along with um, my article. Um, uh, the one that I presented last week and the one this, that I'll be presenting here tonight. <clears throat> the insane doctrine of personal salvation versus covenant theology, number two. The doctrine of personal salvation, as promoted by a nominal church entity, is founded on the false premise that somehow Christ came to sacrifice himself on the cross to give the whole world, no matter what race, an opportunity to decide whether or not they want to accept him and enjoy the benefits of his covenant. Such an assumption immediately makes Yahweh a second-class God. Poor old God can't do anything right. As I demonstrated in paper number one on this subject, if one will only read John 15, uh, verses 13 through 17, John 6, verses 45, 44 rather, 45 and 65, and First um, John 4, verses 9 and 10, he will discover that it is Yahweh in the flesh as Yahshua who does the choosing, the drawing, and loving. And he chose only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his 12 sons and their offspring. Therefore, it is impossible to have both personal salvation and covenant theology in the same Bible. You well, got anything to say, Bill? Well, well right. I, I would like to just quote those four passages to remind the listeners of um, the foundation for your first paper is, is really based on these four passages. And, and yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. These four passages clearly refute the idea of personal salvation. John chapter 15 from verse 13. These are from the, um, these are all from the King James Version, I believe. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Christ referring to what he was about to do on behalf of his people. Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth, I will not call you servants, for the servant knoweth not what his master does. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known to you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. John chapter 6, verses 44, 45, and verse 65, and I quote, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, 
and they shall all be taught of God. And and that's a direct reference to um to Jeremiah chapter thirty one, right? And the promise of the new covenant. Every man, therefore, that is heard and is learned of the Father comes unto me. And verse sixty five. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come to me except it were given to him of my father. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect. A statement made only of the children of Israel. 1 John, John's first epistle, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, and, and that phrase for only begotten can be idiomatically translated his best loved son, that we might live through him, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to, to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us. Amos 3, 2. To the children of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Titus, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. The words of Paul. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, Yahweh in the flesh, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Yahshua Christ our Savior. That there are the four passages upon which your first paper is founded and which we refer to again here, because those passages clearly refute personal salvation, the idea that we choose God, the idea that we can choose to believe Jesus and, and, and by that alone be saved is ridiculous. Paul told the people, let, let, let me say this, Clifton, Paul told the people whom he wrote to that they had to um, believe Christ and, and by that that they were... Um, that they could be certain of their salvation, the world in Paul's days was only made up of white people, and those white people were either wheat or tares. And the tares rejected Christ at that time in the first century. They rejected Christ again and again. The gospel was to be the dividing between the wheat and the tares. Paul was basically telling people that because that was, in the first century, how you told apart the wheat and the tares. Christianity was a religion that men were suffering and dying half of. You wouldn't, unless you knew and you were convinced that Christianity was true, you certainly weren't going to die on behalf of it. You weren't going to divide your family on behalf of some newfangled philosophy unless you believed you would gain your life by that death 
and you knew that that newfangled philosophy was the true word of God. And only the wheat would do that in the first century. The tares didn't do that. Today, we live in a different world. Today, we live in a world where there's no risk in accepting Christianity and everything to be gained by accepting Judeo-Christianity, which is basically Judaism for Gentiles. So, so today it's a different world, and Paul's litmus test is no longer valid, in my humble opinion. Clifton? Yeah, um, yeah very good, Bill. And now I'll continue. Um, now, I wouldn't condemn any white Israelite who has made a decision for Christ but I would remind him that Yahweh in the flesh, as Joshua, decided on him when he purchased him on the cross before he ever made such a determination. Nominal Christianity uh, would have us to believe that we first accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, and after we have done so, then second, we will, uh, he will purchase us. Um, that elevates man's decision over and above Yahweh's decision. That is why I said that makes Yahweh a second-class God. Well, well, right. In effect, it does because it, it, it shows that God can't save his people, that God has no power over his creation. It, it's um, it, it's absurd, especially in in light of the religious atmosphere of today, where a lot of very good white Adamic men have rejected Christianity because the only Christianity they've ever been presented with is the artificial Judeo-Christianity, which basically sets the Jew on the pedestal as God and, and, and rejects the word of God. And, and a good man, a, a good man who understands the, um, the nature of the Jew to any extent has to reject Judeo-Christianity, but Judeo-Christianity is not Christianity. So, so if Yahweh can't save those good men who never professed Christ because they rejected what's really Judaism for non-Jews, well, well, because they rejected that, they're, they're doomed to, to hell or, or, or to um, the lake of fire or, or whatever that Judeo-Christians think they're, they're, they're deserving of because they rejected Judeo-Christianity. That's ridiculous, and that does make... Yahweh our God, a second-class God. Absolutely. That's what, Christianity that's what, is, is basically blasphemy against God. And that's with a small G. Well, well absolutely, of course. But, but yes, that's Judeo-Christianity actually spits in the face of, of God. Only uh, uh, personal salvation does also. But because man can't save himself, not, no man is able to save himself or do anything that would, would enable him to save him, himself. Only God can save us. At this time, I will critique an article that appeared in Destiny Mar Magazine 
for March 1949 entitled The uh, Interdependence of the Two Testaments by Henry D. Hogton. Uh, I will not quote from it, but I will use uh, important views drawn from him. Uh, if you have that particular issue, uh, you may read uh, you may read it for yourself. Well, well Clifton, there are, Clifton, let me say that, that you're, you're quoting a magazine that was 11 years before I was born, and I don't think too many of our listeners have that article. If you um, you're probably the only person I know I could imagine who might have that article. But but if you well, you know, uh, uh, Rand sold an awful lot of those yearbooks, and so it'd be in a 1949 yearbook, and there might be a few that that have that. Well, well, I can count on one hand the people in my in in in, in right now listening to this program that were around in 1945. <laughs> 1949. Well, that kind of dates, dates me, too, because uh, uh, I was married in 1948, so um, I, I didn't know, in 1949, I, I didn't have the slightest idea about anything about Israel identity. Well, well right. So, uh, in this article, though, I, I will post it with, with this podcast on your website when I post it on your website. Yeah. Um Anyway, uh, yeah, you may read it for yourself. There are ideas spread abroad, and this I'm picking up uh, um, not exactly what he said. You know, I'm not quoting him exactly. There are ideas spread abroad among the various denominations of nominal church sanity that the New Testament not only supersedes the old, but also... Revokes many of Yahweh's national promises so clearly recorded therein. Not only this, but Israel's uh, status or standing in the New Testament is altogether altered in nature from that of the Old. They would have us to believe that the Old Testament was made uh, with the conversal Edomite Jews while the New Covenant, and i got to change uh, my screen here a little bit, just to, uh, we know it, uh, the New Covenant, or, or as we know it, the New Testament, was made with some people wrongly identified as Gentiles. By this false assertion, they make the claim that the New Testament repeals the Old Nothing could be more damnably false and overwhelmingly disastrous. Yet, unfortunately, many believe such nonsense. Uh, did you want to say anything, Bill, or should oh, I go on? That, that, that's very succinct. It it it, it works. That they're actually uh, that these people that imagine the New Testament to be a book independent with. Independent from and replacing the Old Testament uh, are only lying and deceiving either others or themselves. I mean, that as you're going to quote here from um, Jeremiah and from Luke chapter 1, the, the New Testament and Old Testament are both replete, that they are both replete with proofs that each book is one book connected to the other, 
and 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 those connections cannot be severed. Well, how these strange suppositions were spawned by the clergy and absorbed by the laity is incomprehensible, if not completely dumbfounding in nature, for there is not a solitary passage in Scripture which supports such an invalid uh, determination. The new covenant is nothing more than the renewal of the old covenant mentioned at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32, and repeated at Hebrews 8, verses 8 and 9. Behold the days days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. Notice how this new uh, is a renewal of the old covenant and an uninterrupted working out by Yahweh of his one complete preordained plan. plan. Observe also that the beneficiaries remain the same, i.e., the house of Israel uh, and with the house of Judah. Nothing about Gentiles here. The Latin word Gentile is correct when it is properly applied, but the definition of the word is not, nor ever was, a non-Jew. Well, well, the Latin word, the original Latin word gentilis, basically refers to somebody of the same race. It, yeah, right. It refers to people of the same race. And, and it's, it's um, striking. I, I, of course, I, I can't get Jerome's motives, right? Jerome's motives for using that word. But wherever the Greek word ethnos appears in, in Scripture, the, wherever the word Gentile appears in, in the New Testament, the Greek word is ethnos, and an ethnos is a nation. That Now, in Latin, we have several words, nadio, gentilis. That there are several words that can, um, that, that can be used, and, and there are even more than that. There are words that mean country or, or people collectively. There are many words in Latin that could be used to, to translate Ethnos, or, or the Hebrew word goy, and Jerome chose gentilis, which is, uh, I can't get into his head as to why or not he did that, but his choice of the word gentilis seems to um, not support universalism. That, that's my opinion. <laughs> well, I understand um, when I did a little research on this that um, uh in the late Latin, uh, it, it, it didn't have a, a meaning of non-Jew. It wasn't until the, the early um, English that they started uh, uh, defining it as non-Jew. Right. So I, I think uh, Jerome was using it in the proper uh, context. You know, I can't say for sure on that, but... but um, 
from what I found in uh, uh, that um, uh, one dictionary that has all the um, European uh, root words and so on, and uh, they give a little more detail on uh, um, at what periods of time it meant, you know, it, it, the, the meaning changed from one period to another. So evidently, I, uh, I, I don't know where to just to place um, early English, but uh, I, I would guess maybe the 14th century, maybe. Do you have any idea? No. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What was the question? Uh, uh, when do you think uh, the early Eng uh, English started? Early English. Well, early English as we know, Middle English. The, the King James version it is really written in in Middle English, right? Yeah. So it'd be before that. Early English is is actually pre-Norman English, which would be the the sixth through the um, the sixth through the eleventh century, perhaps. I'm guessing. I don't. The history of the English language isn't my isn't my forte. But yes, the King James is really written in Middle English. But originally, in the, in the late Latin, it it, it meant uh, same uh, family, same race. Uh, same. Uh, um, I believe that that's how it should be interpreted, and and that's how certain Latin dictionaries, as you pointed out, what with one example, do interpret it. Well, I believe that's the way it should be interpreted in light of all the in light of the meanings of the root words, and in light of the um, all the other words that could have been used. Yeah, right. And one once a. Once it got into into a Bible, you know, for the Jerome probably was the first one to uh, to interpret uh, ethnos to uh, to be uh, um, gentile or gentilis, and um, evidently uh, everybody started copying what he was doing. Well, well, basically, in in scripture, you know, it it really doesn't matter. It's nice to know the motives which men had, and, and and it's even nicer to see the motives that early Christians had may have been of the understanding that we have, and and that's all well and good. The bottom line is that Paul explains, and there's many other places in scripture from which to explain this. Paul explains in Romans chapter four that the people of the faith of Abraham are the nations which descended from Abraham's loins. And, and Paul explains that in, in Romans chapter 4 very clearly if you will simply sit and read it carefully. Now, now there's one word, forefather, which has been um, corrupted to father in later Greek manuscripts, including the King James Version. However, you could still see what Paul is saying right from the King James Version just through a careful reading of Romans chapter 4. The nations which Paul's mission to spread the gospel was made to are indeed, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, the nations which descended from Abraham's loins according to the promise which Yahweh made to Abraham. It, it's that simple. And, and Galatians chapters 3 and 4 
and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 are second and third witnesses. That, that, that's exactly what Paul meant in Romans chapter 4. So, so this, you know, what we really don't need intermediaries to agree with us. It's nice to see it when they do. And it's nice to see through their use of certain words that they may well have. But it's not important because the scripture says what it says. It's very clear. Well, I think it's good to hash this over again because um, there's a lot of it, it. The word Gentile, the Latin word Gentile, serves as a stumbling block for a lot of people. Absolutely, and, but the Greek word "ethnos" certainly does not mean non-Jew. It, it's just a nation. Yeah, right. And and so I thought I would. Um, uh, remind everybody again in this particular uh, it fit in with the uh, topic and I'll go on here at and 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 going back and referring to see at Jeremiah 31 verses 31 32 which you just read uh, the new covenant was a future promise and at Hebrews um, uh, 8 uh, verses 8 and 9, I guess I read that, uh, not you. Uh, it is recognized as a covenant fulfilled. Uh, at least that's, you know, that's, that's my estimate on that. Well, well, absolutely. Paul was succinctly saying that the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapters, chapter 31 and the promise of the new covenant was in Joshua Christ. And it is in Yahshua Christ at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is alleged by some, however, that Yahweh, um, long after the time of the prophets, disinherited the, the uh, 12 tribes of old Israel uh, for their sins and brought in a new spiritual Israel. And that's absolutely absurd because the reason for the passion of Christ was to save old Israel from their sins. They're denying the very mission of Christ himself. They're denying his mission. But but this is one of those things. It's because of our blindness we're trying to substitute here and... and uh, um, but, it, you know, we still have to bring it up. Uh, well, that's why we have Israel identity. That's why we exist as a, a, a sect, a cult, a belief system, is to rectify that situation. And, right. and rectify it through a proper reading and interpretation of Scripture in cohesion with a proper knowledge of the history of our race. <clears throat> yeah, I'll go back here just a few words. Disinherited the 12 tribes of old Israel for their sins and brought in a new spiritual uh, Israel, the Christian church, to take the place of the uh, literal physical line of Israel, which Yahweh had finally given up on and forever cast off. This allegation, however popular it might be, is altogether false and directly opposed to all scripture especially uh, Jeremiah 31, 37, which reads, and i got to scroll down here a little bit. Uh, Thus saith Yahweh, if heaven above can be measured 
and the um, foundations of the earth uh, searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all uh, for all they have uh, done, saith Yahweh. And uh, then I bring up another situation here uh, to kind of amplify on it. Um, I would point out to the reader uh, at this very time, and that was July 5th, uh, uh, 2012, that the astronomers are testing out a new system of 66 telescopes in Chile to measure the universe which leads them to believe that there are many other universes, not just galaxies and solar systems, but many other universes besides their own uh, uh, with their own galaxies and their solar systems and solar systems. So uh, we can be quite sure, uh, we can be quite safe rather in believing that the 12 tribes of Israel will never be uh, permanently cast off. And I've got to adjust my screen here again. For all those who reject the Old Testament, and many do, especially Roman, Romish Catholics, what's considered Paul's uh, words at uh, Romans 11, 1 through 5. I say then, hath Yahweh cast away his people? Yahweh forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Yahweh hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Wot ye not uh, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to Yahweh against Israel, saying, uh, Yahweh, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thy, thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of Yahweh unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Uh, even so, then, at this present time, during Paul's lifetime, I can put that in uh, brackets, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. But let me say two things, let, let me say two things because this is, um, this is very often misinterpreted, even in Christian identity circles. Paul is not talking to Jews here. Paul's talking about Israelite Judeans, and he is talking about them to Israelite Romans, as he indirectly explains in Romans chapters 1 and 4. In, in, in Romans chapter 4, as, as I have already explained here, Paul has said that to the Romans that they are of those nations of the faith of Abraham, the nations that descended from Abraham's loins, from his seed. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells the people whom he addresses, and he's talking to Romans, that they were, were being punished because they took, that they, took, they were worthy of punishment, the Romans collectively, 
because they took the, the image of God and, and the truth of God and turned it into a lie. Now, it's very clear in Paul's epistle to the Romans, once it's understood historically, that he's talking to descendants of the ancient Israelites. A comparison between the Israelites in Judea and the Edomites in Judea is the subject of Paul's epistle from Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Throughout this entire section of Romans, and the greater context of the entire epistle, is a comparison between the Israelites of the remnant in Judea and the Israelites of the ancient dispersions. Those are the Abrahamic nations in Romans chapter 4, who, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 2, have the law of God, another reference to Jeremiah chapter 31, had the law of God written in their hearts. And Paul commends the Romans for having the law of God written in their hearts in Romans chapter 2. He can only be talking about Israelites, as he explains himself. And the Romans once had the truth of God and changed it into lies, as he explains in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 9, Paul tells us that the covenants and the promises, among other things, belong to Israel. Israel according to the flesh and not the spiritual Israel. Now, this remnant that he's talking about is certainly Israel in Judea. But he's talking about this remnant Israel in Judea to dispersed Israel in Rome. That has to be made clear, and, and that passages from Romans are consistently out of that context, especially by universalists and Judeo-Christians, and they're doing damage to Paul's content. They're doing damage to Paul's intent and twisting his words. Now, now, now it's, thank you, and, and you could go on with your... Um, Comments on Romans chapter 11. Yeah. Um, this passage demonstrates that no matter how great the sins of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, Yahweh is not going to cast them off without providing a way back to him. It should be pointed out that Jeremiah's prophecy at 31:37 was made 115 years after the northern 10 tribes of Israel were banished out of their land for their sins. This shows that Yahweh resolved that under absolutely no circumstances whatsoever uh, would he disinherit or cast off Israel forever. If one will but read the entire content of Jeremiah chapter 31, you will find it contains wonderful promises and uh, predictions for all of Israel, some of which are absolutely unconditional. This chapter covers a lot of subjects which demand our careful attention. Probably the most important fact that uh, every serious Bible student should understand is that it was written in regard to the 12 tribes of Israel and not to the conversal Edomite Jews as nominal church entity so falsely contend. 
it's about time that we respect the words of our almighty Yahweh to be carried out in tutu, i.e., in, in the whole, and applied to the correct people. Anything, Bill? Well, well not yet, but after the next paragraph, I, I have comments. In spite of all this evidence, to the contrary, uh, for one reason or another, there has grown up in the rank and file of the clergy, along with much of the laity in nominal churchanity, the, the mistaken idea, idea that the two separate testaments uh, are made with two different peoples and that somehow the authority passed away and ceases to belong uh, to whom it was originally promised and somehow another people, the Gentiles, a Latin term uh, found nowhere in the original Bible text, had superseded them and inherited the New Testament, making void Yahweh's unconditional, everlasting covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his offspring, implying that Yahweh lied, making him making him an Indian giver. It is is there any end uh, to the link? People will go to twist holy writ. And I want to uh, I want to approach that from another angle, right? Why, why is the word tribes used in conjunction with Israel in the New Testament if the New Testament Israel is only some spiritual Israel? Because tribes cannot be spiritual, right? If this were so, there would be no need for Christ to have referenced the children of Israel according to tribes, since a spiritual Israel cannot consist of tribes. But in Revelation chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 21, he called Israel by tribes when he committed the revelation to John 60 years after his resurrection. James refers to the children of Israel in his singular epistle by tribes. In his introduction to his epistle, he calls them the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Why, if Israel is replaced with a spiritual Israel, would James call them the 12 tribes? There would be no reason for that. Why did Paul make reference to the 12 tribes of Israel in Acts chapter 26, 30 years after the crucifixion, where Paul said that the promise of God was unto our 12 tribes, specifically and very explicitly, a so-called spiritual Israel does not contain 12 tribes. You, you, you might consider yourself a spiritual Israelite. You can't consider yourself a member of any tribe of Israel unless you genetically descended from that tribe. So, so that use of the word tribes alone in the Revelation, in the Acts, in the Epistle of James proves beyond doubt. That alone proves beyond doubt. 
that the spiritual Israel angle is wrong because the promises, Acts 26, are still to our 12 tribes, and they're not for anybody else. Christ said he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not for the replacement sheep of the house of Israel. The, 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 the whole replacement theology angle is absolutely ridiculous and spits in the face of the word of God. Yeah, I'll tell you, Bill, where the, um, uh, my experience of going to church and the Sunday schools and so on, I'll tell you where they're getting a, a lot of this spiritual stuff. They have what they, um, all the churches practically have it. I don't think there's any that don't have, uh, you know, there might be an occasional independent movement that don't have it. But they all study their Sunday school lessons from what they call the international uh, um, quarterlies. And, and I'm persuaded there's some Jew in some office someplace that writes up all those lessons. Well, well, if it has um, international in it, you could bet he does. Well, the reason I believe that is because there, almost in every uh, seminary, uh, they they have a Jew employed uh, to help them understand the uh, uh, the Hebrew, and so they're in there advising on this kind of stuff. And I've already uh, maybe I had some occasion uh, that I had to go out to the car or something, and I had to go down the hallway, and I was passing several classrooms, and they 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 were all teaching that same lesson that day. And uh, and I'd go past one room and and uh, yeah they were you know they was read they was reading it actually they probably didn't even study that the teacher was reading it out of the quarterly uh, to them and um, but but all you know each time you pass a, a, another Sunday school room they they was teaching out of that same quarterly and and so I think there's where a lot of the garbage is getting into the uh, different uh, denomination of churches. Well, well, I'm sure, you know, the Jews have had control of the publishing industry for 100 years and, and, and the textbook industry, that they, they have even much more control over it now than they did 50 years ago. But, but um, that they've cemented that control, and they get to choose what books get published and what books don't. And you could bet that if the Jew owns the printing press, you're not going to find anything but pro-Jew, um, universalist propaganda coming off those presses? Well, one time I um, contradicted the, the Sunday school teachers ahead of our class. Uh, they was talking about um, um, Isaac and Rebecca. And remember, Rebecca ended up having twins, you know, Jacob and Esau. And uh, they was talking about how bad Rebecca was and everything. And I just felt like maybe I ought to stick up for her. And I mentioned the fact that that she had gone to the Almighty and uh, requested uh, information about the situation. And he told uh, he told her the uh, um, the older would serve the younger. Right. And so, uh, in other words, I was saying Rebecca was only doing what she knew was right. And that didn't go over very good. 
But uh, that's one of my experiences uh, in Sunday school. <laughs> well, well, thank, I, I thank God I don't have any experiences in Sunday school. Uh, I went to Catholic school, but they didn't teach religion. They did for the first four years, but, but I went to a different school for my second four years of grade school. And it was religion was a, a forty-five minute a week class that was very new agey and and hippieish and full of garbage, and they never had Bibles or any semblance of them or any well, scripture. Getting back to the my article here, other people regard the New Testament as a hasty standby device to meet the embarrassing and unexpected emergency situation that the Old Testament had failed the always expectations. On that failure, the New Testament was made necessary by Yahweh's sudden unforeseen changes of plans. In fact, the dispensationalists claim that the Almighty has changed his plans uh, time and time again. Uh, they claimed he tried his first plan for a thousand years, and when it didn't work out, he tried a, a new plan for another thousand years. In fact, such people as these claim that the Almighty has now changed his plans six times, and when he returns at his second advent, it will be the seventh change. Anything, Bill? Well, well, the the identity viewpoint, in contrast, recognizes that Yahweh God had a very specific design right from the beginning, which he has carried through successfully ever since the first day of Genesis. The dispensationalists and and the Judeo-Christians who follow it, and and they all do, that they think that God just keeps screwing up and has to come up with a new plan. We understand that... that, um, the, the, the old plan has been the plan from the beginning, and it, it certainly has been fulfilled according to his purpose every step of the way. So we believe God, and they reject God, while honoring him with their lips, their hearts are far from him. Yeah. And continuing here, no true conception of the scriptures can correctly be arrived at while such errant views are held, for they are violently opposed to the word of Yahweh and are in direct conflict with both the Old and New Testaments. To show you this glaring conflict, it must be demonstrated that the whole of the conception and operation of the New Testament comes from the Old. To reject the Old Testament would be like bulldozing the foundation out from under one's house. Uh, that house would no longer be livable. Uh, remove the Old Testament from under the New Testament, and the New Testament uh, would not be livable. Secondly, removing the authority of the Old Testament would be like building a house from the top downwards. Try uh, doing this sometime by taking an extension ladder and anchor it anchoring it some way so it won't fall over, put on a nail sack and take some nails and a hammer to the desired height for the roof and start nailing shingles on the thin air and see how far you get. 
these illustrations might seem to be quite foolish, but it is no more foolish than removing the authority of the Old Testament, leaving the New Testament without any foundation. Well, well absolutely. There are hundreds of quotes, hundreds of quotes uh, of the Old Testament found in the New Testament, which show that the Old Testament, what was certainly valid, was certainly still used for moral guidance, for scriptural guidance, for, for guidance in, 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 and and for, for appearing into its prophecies to see their fulfillment, that, there's, that there are um, that many aspects of the Old Testament fully employed by the apostles who saw all of Scripture as fully valid. And even Christ, in, in referencing one psalm, said the Scripture does not fail. So if he says the Scripture does not fail... How could today's churches refute his words and, and say that the Old Testament is done away with is ridiculous because when Christ uttered those words, there was no New Testament. There was no New Testament for several decades, in, as we know it, before he uttered those words. So, so it's ridiculous. Now, now you've um, leaned on Jeremiah 31 here in order to demonstrate that the um, the New Testament is a matter of Old Testament prophecy, and, and that's fine, and and that is the first verse to turn to. But there's there are other promises of another covenant with that God would make with the children of Israel found elsewhere in the prophets. There's one in Isaiah. I think it's chapter 62. I'm not sure. It might be a little sooner, but the one I have in mind right now is. Ezekiel chapter 37, where from verse 26, God says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. He's talking about the children of Israel here and nobody else. And will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them, meaning the children of Israel. And that tabernacle is actually Yahshua Christ. He is the tabernacle of Yahweh our God. He is the fullness of the, the divinity bodily, as Paul calls him in his epistle to the Colossians. Yahweh's tabernacle is Christ. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-seven. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, talking to the children of Israel alone. And they shall be my people. Nobody else can claim to be his people unless they fit themselves into that they in Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-seven. Only the children of Israel can do that. And this promise, this promise, as you pointed out about the promise in Jeremiah chapter 31, was made to the children of Israel over a hundred years after the deportations of most of the 12 tribes by the Assyrians. Well, you know, the, it's the same tabernacle that Christ said he would raise up in three days. Right, absolutely. Well, the same temple. 
when are when are nominal churchianity ever going to learn that Yahweh doesn't have a new plan or purpose, but he is uh, continuing with his original plan and purpose in the New Testament. It is not a new plan. It is the old. It is not uh, with a new people. It is with the old. It is not a new device. It is the old. There was made, this was made very clear when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary the birth of Christ, uh, who would uh, become the lamb slain uh, before the foundation of the world at Luke 1, uh, verses 32 and 33. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and Yahweh shall give him uh, the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Uh, if the Old Testament lost its authority with the arrival of the new, then the angel lied to Mary. Zacharias, filled with the Holy Spirit at Luke uh, 1, Verses 68 through 72 prophesied, saying, I've got to adjust my screen here just a little bit. Um, Blessed be Yahweh, the mighty one of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by his mouth, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercies, mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. If the Old Testament lost its authority with the arrival of the new, Not only did the angel Gabriel lie, but most of the prophets of the Old uh, Testament. uh, I didn't read that right. Um, If Gabriel lied, then most, if not all, of the Old Testament prophets lied also. And, And... When are all of these false allegations going to stop? Because that's what Judeo-Christianity is doing. They are accusing the the angel Gabriel and and the other New Testament writers and and the Old Testament prophets. Judeo-Christianity accuses them of lying. The dispensationalists are, in essence, accusing the writers of our Bibles of lying. They're rewriting the Bible. Yeah, I would recommend people... uh... Uh, on, my, on my website, go to uh, a paper I did uh, when I was first writing, uh, and it's along this line. Uh, clergy claims God committed fraud. Right. And, it's one of your first pamphlets. And that was my position then, and I haven't changed since. And and uh, uh, had some. There was a. Uh, a woman still living that uh, went to church with uh, the um, friends uh, of my my wife and I, 
And I sent her a copy of that. And boy, did she get mad. Well, one, another promise of the New Covenant is found in Isaiah chapter, I'm sorry, it wasn't chapter 62. The passage I was thinking of was 61, Isaiah chapter 61, 8. But let me read Isaiah chapter um, 59, verses 20 and 21. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and, and the Redeemer is Christ, of course, right? And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith Yahweh, as for me, this is my covenant with them, saith Yahweh, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in my mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith Yahweh, from henceforth and forever. So when we take, we as the children of Israel, if we indeed are the children of Israel, take, turn away from transgression in Christ and, and, um, and take his words as he gave them to us in his gospel, what, what we, what we have that covenant with him forever, but only the children of Israel have that covenant with him because that promise was only made to the children of Israel. It, it's all over the Bible, the promise of the new covenant. It, it's in Isaiah, it's in Ezekiel, it's in Jeremiah. It's a matter of prophecy. It's prophesied only for the children of Israel. And it's prophesied for, for e even though those of us who don't turn away from transgression remain in our punishment and, and, and likewise probably have no reward in the kingdom to come, Yet, yet this is prophesied for all of the children of Israel. And we'll see that momentarily. I'm sorry, Clifton, about that digression, but I had to throw that in there. That's fine. That's fine. You know, I think a lot of what we're um, uh, stating here, you know, in, in uh, uh, first in what you um, uh, went over and then what we've gone over here together so far, uh, this goes. Uh, 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 this flies in the face of uh, alias Eli. Well, well, right. Because he, it's a damn shame that there are people in Christian identity who still cling to the Catholic ideas of personal salvation. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine with all these scriptures that that back up the covenant and, and the covenant for Israel only and, no, and nobody else uh, gets in unless if you're in that covenant you can't get out of it if you're not in you can't get in it right and, and uh, uh, I, I I don't understand why anybody would want to continue uh, to claim that they're they believe uh, Israel identity and, and, and follow uh, alias Eli's positions on this stuff. Because these, these scriptures flying right in the, his face uh, and calling each, each of these scriptures is called, calling alias Eli a liar. Well, well, right. The first precept to Christian Israel identity should be covenant theology. That's what identity is all about. I'll go on here now. 
it is it now becomes apparent that the new covenant did not destroy his holy covenant. Well, Simon Gabriel says that he came to fulfill his holy covenant. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, well, um, I to remind the listeners did, what we were talking about that we we were referring back to Luke chapter one. Yeah, right. I'll start, I'll start the paragraph over now. Uh, it now becomes apparent that the new covenant did not destroy his holy covenant. Uh, Simon, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke with Christ as a light to lighten the lost Israel tribes. I, I put that in brackets. And the glory of the people of Israel. Luke 2, uh, 32. This text is correctly this correct this text is correctly understood as meaning a light to lighten the lost Israel nations, not the conversal Edomite Jews. <clears throat> uh, lost my place and the glory of thy people, the twelve tribes of Israel, uh, of the children of Israel. On, and I'm going to uh, um, quote about you know how they become conversal Jews here. On the conversal Edomite Jews, check Josephus Antiquities, 13, chapter 9, paragraph 1. I'll repeat that. It's Josephus Antiquities, book 13, chapter 9, paragraph 1. And you should put a marker in uh, in, uh, in that page there so you can always find it real quickly. And it reads, Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marissa, cities of Idumea, and subdued all the Idumeans and permitted them to stay in that country if they would circumcise their genitals and make use of the laws of the Jews, six, six Judeans, and they uh, were so desirous of living in the country of their Edomite forefathers that they submitted to the use of circumcision and the rest of the Jewish ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them that they were hereafter no other than Jews. And, of course, I did some underlining, and, and I said underlining mine. Um, a footnote on the same page makes the following comment on this passage. Uh, this account of the Idumeans uh, admitting uh, circumcision and the entire Jewish law from this time or from the days of Hyrcanus is confirmed by the entire history afterwards. This, in the opinion of Josephus, made them proselytes of justice or entire Jews. However, Antigonus, the enemy of Herod, thought Herod was derived from such a proselyte of justice for several generations, will not allow him to be uh, no more than half, uh, half Jew, i.e., 
half Judaite and half Edomite. Well, well right, and, half a Jew because he was really half Jew because he, his philosophy and religion professed Judea, you know, the religion of the Judeans and the laws of the temple, but he was really an Edomite fully by blood. Yeah, I found uh, a documentation on that someplace that uh, uh, that um, uh, you know, speaking of Herod, he was Edomite on both sides of his house. Yes. Um, Ammonius, a grammarian, says uh, the Jews are such by nature. God move my. Uh, here and from the beginning, beginning, whilst the Idumeans were not Jews from the beginning, but being afterwards subdued by the, the Jews, sick Judaite, Judaites, and compelled to be circumcised and to unite into one nation and be subject to the same laws, they were called Jews. Deal also says that the country is also called Judea and the people Jews, and this name is given also to as many as embrace their religion though of other nations. Um, and that's sort of the end of the quote. Anything, Bill? Well, well let me say that what one thing that the... Um well, one passage that the note maker overlooked, and, and this may be Whiston himself, is Strabo. Strabo, in his 16th book of his geography, on a couple of occasions, substantiates Josephus' Josephus's testimony and tells us that Edomites and, and Judeans were living in the same nation and, and religion. But the... Um, the best substantiation is Ezekiel chapter 34. And let me say something about this Dora. We see these words Dora and Marissa. And Dora is name is the name that Josephus gives to the ancient city of Dor. And in ancient times, in, in the 12th century BC, many Israelites departed from Dor and migrated to Greece. And they were called Dorian Greeks. Now, that can be substantiated from later history and from later scripture that the Dorian Greeks were indeed Israelites from the city of Dor. However, Dor was one of those cities that Ezekiel 34 explains that the Edomites took over Judah and Israel, the lands of Judah and Israel, these two countries would be mine, is, is what Ezekiel, the words Ezekiel puts in the mouth of the children of Edom. And they took over Judah and Israel, and Dor, the ancient seacoast city, was one of the, the, the larger cities that the Edomites had taken over. And, and when they converted to, um, to Judaism in the days of Hyrcanus, they also, even though they're really not part of the um, the New Testament picture, because Dor is pretty far from Jerusalem, and Christ did not travel to Dor. He did not go to Dor during his ministry, or at least it's not recorded that he ever went to Dor. Now, Peter um, did go nearby well, when he was at the home of, of Simon the Tanner. He was actually rather close to Dor, but that's 
that, that's besides the point. He wasn't far north of it anyway. But Christ never went to that area during his ministry, or, or at least it's not recorded. And, and Dor was principally at this time an Edomite city in, in the, at the time of, of the life of Christ. And those people are, are contributed greatly to the gene pool that makes the Jews of today. Not all of the Jews of today come from the people, the people that survived in Jerusalem. That there were other Edomites all over Judea who also converted to Judaism. And, and this passage of Josephus is very illustrative of that. Clifton? Yeah. Uh, because of this evidence that, um, from Josephus and this uh, other evidence that um, Bill just mentioned, um, I use the phrase the conversal Edomite Jews, and now you know the reason why. I, I, I like to, whenever I'm talking about these Edomites uh, uh, or Edomite Jews, to uh, definitely separate them from the true tribe of Judah. And I do that wherever I can. Um, the term converso is from the Latin meaning to turn around. You'll not find uh, the, the definition in most English dictionaries. And um, an alternate phrase might be um, uh, the imposter turned around Edomite Jews. No sooner had the uh, Edomites been converted to Israelitism, and they began their evil effort to subvert the context of our holy scriptures to suit their own wicked Kabbalism, uh, called today the Babylonian or the Jerusalem Talmud. Christ himself designated this corruption of the Bible as the traditions of the elders. Not that the Jude, not not the Judaite, uh, uh, Judaite. I'm trying to separate them again here if I can uh, read it right. Not the Judaite elders, but the conversal Edomite elders. There's a big difference. Although the conversal Edomite uh, Mesorites uh, did a hatchet job on our holy scripture, they failed to corrupt every truth, and we must be very careful to divide the truth upon us from their intentional fraud. Remember, the ultimate sin is to mix good with evil, and it begins by mixing truth with a lie. Anything, Bill? Well, well, no. I mean, it speaks for itself. That that's true. It, it's um, it, even a little lie in scripture can can set off a great forest fire. Um, nominal churchanity continues to insist that all of the Old Testament laws have been done away with, but should they carefully examine examine scripture, they would discover it was. The ritual laws only that were discontinued at Christ's crucifixion, for he fulfilled all of the ritual laws. Some laws can be fulfilled, 
while others cannot, and there are a lot of differences between the two. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, explains how some of the laws are fulfilled. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath equipped together with him, uh, having given you all, having forgiven all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. This, this, please notice this passage is speaking of the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, not the entire law. It is highly dishonest to interpret this passage to mean such a thing. What then was the ordinance, the ordinance that was against us, uh, against the 12 tribes of Israel, not us, but the 12 tribes of Israel? The answer is, it was the law of uh, remarriage of Israel's former husband being divorced from him. This ordinance is found at Deuteronomy uh, 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then, got to adjust my screen here, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement uh, and give it, it in her hand and send it her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled, for that is an abomination. That is, and there's not an man here, for that is abomination before Yahweh, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which Yahweh thy Elohim giveth thee for an inheritance. Well, let me say that that this is, um, well, well, it's a very insightful explanation because we have to look for ordinances that are against us when when we consider what Paul was saying. What was it that prevented our reconciliation to God after we were divorced and cast out of the land by him for, as the prophets make very clear, for the charge of fornication. So, so if the charge is fornication, if that was the reason why we were divorced, we have to look at the law and see exactly what handwriting of ordinance, ordinances was against us, which prevented our reconciliation to God. 
and it go that that leads to the issue why did Christ have to die and Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that Christ died the husband had to die to release the children of Israel from the law you mentioned that there were laws that could be fulfilled and laws that could not be fulfilled of course the law that tells us not to murder well well that law can't be fulfilled well we still shouldn't murder we still shouldn't um, rob our brother we still shouldn't sleep with our brother's wife and all the other laws that, that are basically the, the, um, the, the moral, the natural moral laws of God. And, and we see that Abraham kept Yahweh's statutes and ordinances before 400 years, 400 years. It's in Genesis chapter 25, 400 years before the law was given to Israel. So there are laws of God that are universal that, that should always have application. And then there's the law, the, the Levitical and Deuteronomy, the, the laws in Deuteronomy that apply to the covenant relationship between God and Israel and the rituals that the children of Israel had to fulfill under the law when they, were, um, when they had, had, had sinned, and that was done away with in Christ. He is our Passover. He is our sacrifice. But most importantly, Yahweh, God, is free under the law to remarry the children of Israel if indeed he dies first and frees Israel from the law. And that law is the handwriting of ordinances that were against us, that prevented our reconciliation to God, and God rectified that by coming as a man and dying to fulfill and, and, and to bring that law to an end. So, so that's very insightful. <laughs> I just thought I'd summarize it. So that that, That's very good, uh, Bill. You did a good job. It is imperative that we understand that Yahweh is not going to break his own law, yet Hosea 2.7 declares, and she, Israel, shall follow after her lovers, but uh, she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. Now, she evidently had a, she couldn't have said first husband unless she had a second husband, right? Well, well, right, and she had many second husbands, and, and she was, she, she was censured and chastised by Yahweh for having many second husbands all throughout the, the words of the prophets, her, her lovers that she followed after. But, but see, uh, she's, she's proposing that she's going to break the law uh, of uh, of uh, uh, well, well, right. If her first husband takes her back, then her husband is breaking the law, which you point out from Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four. And Yahweh will not break His own law, but He can fulfill the law by dying on the cross and then being resurrected because he died on the cross he fulfilled the law he he met the letter of his own law and now he can take israel back yeah that's well put uh, 
and I think most people don't even understand. Uh, they don't even understand that the uh, at Mount Sinai that uh, uh, Yahweh married all twelve tribes of Israel. Absolutely, that's pre the, and, uh, the first prenuptial agreement in history. <laughs> When the children of Israel agreed to abide by the laws of, of, of the husband, of Yahweh, their God. I would like to take that one step further. When, when, they, when they married Yahweh, uh, they uh, said that they would obey that prenuptial agreement, them and their children. And, and then it was broken. So... Uh, in the New Testament, it says all are guilty and have come short. Well, we were all divorced. And even though we're living in a different area, we still fall under that divorce category. Well, well a lot of people today protest the idea that their ancestors can bind them to a covenant, right? But their ancestors certainly had that idea. Well, when Isaac was on the altar... All of his seed, everything that proceeded from the loins of Isaac, were basically dedicated to Yahweh God when Abraham, Isaac's father, put him on that altar and dedicated him to God. And if Isaac can be dedicated to God on that altar, then in the eyes of God, who is eternal, everything that proceeds from the loins of Isaac belongs to Yahweh God. That's the way God thinks. Men might protest against that, but men are a creation of that God who have no choice in the matter. That's why Paul says Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, yet Levi was only in the loins of Abraham when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And Paul uses that as the illustration that the Levitical priesthood is not the the original and it's not the eternal priesthood so 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 that that it didn't have its origination from the beginning so it could pass because the original priesthood was the melchizedek priesthood and christ is a priest after the order of melchizedek according to the prophets and the prophecies in the Psalms of David. So Paul used that as a rhetorical device to demonstrate to the Hebrews that the Levitical law wasn't the the, the, the law that 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 was to be permanent. So it, it was the Melchi the, the Melchizedek priesthood that was original. So so Levi being in the loins of Abraham, Paul used that as a device to show that Levi being in the loins of Abraham, who tithed to Melchizedek, Levi also, in essence, was part of that tithing to Melchizedek. That Levi, the Levitical priesthood, is actually subordinate to the Melchizedek priesthood. That's the, the, the rhetorical device Paul was using. So when we make a promise, we can, in the eyes of God, indeed bind our children to that promise. And there's more examples than that in Scripture. Well, there's, um, there's some people, you know, that uh, they don't really know the Scriptures, and uh, they they think, you know, I've never done anything really bad, you know. And, and maybe there are people that 
lived a pretty good life, you know. But yet we're all divorced because of our forefathers. Or they were divorced so that uh, we were divorced with them. Absolutely. And, and so uh, otherwise there would be, if that wasn't true, there would be no need to redeem us. And, and if that wasn't true, then none of Yahweh's covenants would be perpetual. None of them. Right. Because they would only last for, for the duration of one generation. Yah- Yahweh said he would make a perpetual covenant with Israel. That, that's the children of Israel and all their legitimate descendants. It doesn't go away. And I don't think that uh, this... I think that this uh, uh, verse in Hosea 2.7 is really speaking of today because I, I think it's today that uh, we're, we're turning back and deciding that we were married in the first place and we want to return to our first husband. Well, well absolutely. And, and, uh, who was married to that first husband even though we were in the loins of our ancestors? Now, now, there are some clowns who would claim that we were spirits floating around in heaven, but that's not what the Bible says. We were in the loins of our ancestors. We were in the loins of Isaac when he was sacrificed on the altar. We were in the loins of the patriarchs when they were brought, up out, when they were brought to Egypt in captivity. We were in the loins of the fourth generation, fifth generation, when they came out of Egypt with Moses, we were in their loins, and and that's that that's what we were there, and we were known by God before we were born. But even though we ourselves didn't know God before we were born, a lot of people want to think that Adamic people pre-existed in heaven. But well, that's not true. If that were true, then Paul wouldn't have been able to say that Levi was in the loins of Abraham when he tithed to Melchizedek. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Misunderstandings of Scripture, which are passing themselves off as Christian identity today, that are virtually ridiculous. Yeah, I don't go for that pre-existence. Uh, well, no, just because we were just because we were known in the mind of God, who knows all things and who sees the fu- future, doesn't mean that we ourselves were conscious. We were in the loins of our ancestor. Now He knew us before He created the earth. Right. Uh, he knew that he knew. We, we would be born. But that uh, mean we knew him or knew each other or had cognizance of anything. But, you know, I, I thought, uh, I, I think that Hosea 2.7 really kind of applies to us today because you take during the uh, Dark Ages in Europe, uh, the only thing... Uh, I guess it would be possible to be a Christian during that period. Um, uh, uh, you'd have to do what the priest told you to do, you know. And um, uh, I think maybe people knew enough to know that they, 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 they wanted to believe in Christ. You know, probably not know why. And they didn't know they were divorced uh, uh, people and, and all that. Uh, so I, I believe that uh, I believe that this applies to the time that John Wilson started teaching 
Well, well then it, it absolutely does, because that's when Yahweh it is recognized as the husband of divorced Israel. And, and that only comes with, with Christian identity, that understanding. Now, now let me say that, that you know, Bede, to, 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 um, to defend the Dark Ages just a little bit, right? The, the Venerable Bede... He was the English cleric, and he was Catholic from the 8th century A.D. The picture he draw, drew of the Catholic Church was very beneficent, and it was very different from the church that we knew in the later Middle Ages, which was quite tyrannical. And Bede explains the, um, the, the process of, of the conversion, you know, during his time, of the conversion of the Germanic tribes to Christianity. And he actually says that they were actually, the, the priests all over were studying the Word of God in Greek and, and Latin and translating it into the, the local tongues, the local languages. And that's in the 8th century A.D. that those translations were taking place. It's only from about the 11th century, I believe, and definitely from the 13th, that the, um, the Catholic Pope started banning translation of Scripture and, and pulling people away from the Word of God. I just thought I'd throw that in there. But, but, um, so so the, the Dark Ages Church, it, it wasn't... Um, it, even though it, it was very... Um, paternal and, and and very demand that we we would see it as demanding in certain ways of, of Christians it was still a lot better than the later middle ages and and the church the tyrannical church of of uh, of the um, more recent history yeah it's kind of funny how they became christians back in that time the king would the uh, if, if he was uh, converted to Christianity, his whole realm was converted. Right, absolutely. The king or the tribal chieftain to a lesser degree, but, but yes, all his people. Well, when a leader converted to Christianity, all his people didn't have much choice. Well, that's an unusual way to... Uh, but their knowledge was limited. They, did, they didn't have the scriptures open to them like we're having it open to us today. I'll go on here. How then is it possible for Israel to return to her first husband, Yahweh? answer is, the only way that Israel can return to her husband is if Yahweh would come in the flesh of Yeshua and offer himself on the cross and suffer death on behalf of Israel. This he did, and by doing so, blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Nominal church sanity, by and large, uh, are blind to the blotting out and teach personal salvation in its place. Though we never married any other than the 12 tribes of Israel, nor did he divorce any other than the 12 tribes of Israel, nor did he... Uh, offer himself on the cross for any other than the 12 tribes of Israel. When, when are we ever going to... What do you, what do you uh, Let me just interject that that is why Christ um, repeated the law of divorce in the manner that he did in Luke chapter 16. Joshua Christ said, 
very clearly that the kingdom of heaven has been preached from the time of John the Baptist and the violent ones forced their way into it. And as soon as he said that, he said, he who divorces his wife, meaning Yahweh divorcing Israel, and marries another, meaning those people forcing their way into the kingdom of heaven, commits adultery. Yahweh, men commit adultery all the time, but Yahweh God will not commit adultery. He will not divorce his wife and marry another. He seeks to have his divorced wife back. He remarries himself to the 12 tribes of Israel, and those others are excluded. Well, you know, Bill, uh, those guys who were forcing their their uh, way in the kingdom uh, were Edomite Jews, right? At that time they were, but now it's every other fish in the sea. <laughs> well, it just seems to me that there's there's kind of a comparison with them and alias Eli. Well, well, absolutely. He's forcing I, I see it. He's trying to force himself into the kingdom. And he he doesn't have the um, um, he's not under the covenant, and he can't he can't come under the covenant. Well, well, he's trying to pervert the word of God to squeeze himself and others into the covenant who don't belong there. There's no doubt. When are we, when are we ever going to learn that we can't even have a one percent? comprehension of the New Testament without first having an all-inclusive understanding of the old. Christ's red-letter words uh, speak loud and clear on this subject at Matthew 5, verses 17 to 19. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill but to fulfill, for verily I say unto you, till say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot uh, or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoso shall whoever but whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called the great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, well, absolutely. I, I'm not. We're, we're way over time. I would like to read the rest of your paper and and. Oh, yeah. Go ahead and get it over. Yeah, you know that this it this is not voiding the law. That this passage in Matthew, it is confirming the law. It's not revoking, it's fulfilling the law. This demonstrates beyond all doubt that those old Israelite prophecies and promises are backed up by Christ's authority and are still in force. Nominal churchianity today, for the most part, ignore this straightforward declaration of our kinsman redeemer as the sole purpose for his coming. It is a very dangerous proposition to sit in judgment of Almighty Yahweh or attempt to dictate to him on what terms 
his favors shall be dispensed, or who has the right to receive them. That's what nominal churchianity, that's what all of the Judeo churches do, that's what all of the universalists do. The only hope for those under his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his offspring lies in establishing the truth of that legal instrument, not doctored or altered truth rearranged to satisfy men's played pretty doctrinal theories. Altered truth is unmitigated error, gross and shameful, and can never take the place of Yahweh's genuine truth. A good example of this is Paul's statement at Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, For I could wish that myself were accursed, from Christ, from my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of Yahweh and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all Yahweh blessed forever. Generally speaking, Nominal churchianity would spiritualize this, mess, this passage while its meaning is definitely literal. Think about it. Are we really to believe that Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh are spiritual? This is not spiritual seed that Paul is speaking of. My brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, said he. To this same fleshly brethren he says, pertaineth the adoption, present tense, and the covenants, and the promises, lest again a spiritual seed be imagined here, he adds, whose are the fathers, thus plainly and definitely fixing all of these great possessions upon a literal seed. This absolutely does not favor the casting off theory, nor yet that of a displacement by a so-called Gentile church. And let me add that Paul here in Romans, as I explained earlier, is, a, is talking about the remnant of Israelites in Judea, and he's explaining this to the dispersion of ancient Israelites of whom the Romans were a part. And the Corinthians, being Dorian Greeks, were also a part. And to the Corinthians, Paul, in reference to the other nations of Europe who were practicing paganism, said, Behold, Israel according to the flesh. And he goes on to say that the things that the nations sacrificed, they sacrificed to idols and not to God. He's talking about Israel according to the flesh. He's talking about the ancient dispersions of Israel, where he says Israel according to the flesh in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's talking about the Israelite remnant in Judea, where he talks about his kinsmen according to the flesh in Romans chapter 9. But whether it's the Israelite remnant in Judea, or whether it's the dispersion of Israel in Europe, it's still... Israel according to the flesh. It is evident that if Yahweh were going to permanently cast off Israel, Paul knew absolutely nothing about it. In fact, his, his epistles refuted again and again, for he distinctly asserts in unmistakable terms quite the contrary very often. 
My hope, meaning Clifton's, my hope with this essay, my hope is that the reader is now more aware of the difference between personal salvation and covenant theology. For without the covenants, we surely have nothing. And let me add Isaiah 45.25. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. And I can only ask which part of all the seed is so difficult to understand. Thank you for joining me, Clifton. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, everybody. Tomorrow night, the Canaanite woman, the biblical perspective. I will be with Sword Brethren. Next Friday, I will proceed with my commentary on the book of Acts, with Acts chapter 13. Thank you, Clifton. Thank you all. Good night. Praise Yahweh. And good night.